Hi, welcome back to Freshwater Perspectives, where today we're going to be talking about the Arapaima's community-based conservation success. Stay tuned. Riley, what's new, man? How you doing? Hey, Matt. I'm doing good. Just, you know, living. Just got back from a conference. So oh, okay. yeah, a, a tribal conference. I work for a Ooh. tribal government. And uh, yeah, it was interesting to see a lot, a lot of, I mean, so like, it's like, it's like a different state, right? So each, mm -hmm. each group. So there's, it's um the upper Midwest. There's like a, a group of tribes, right? And um, so we all got together and it's, um, it's interesting like like hmm. that like some people do you know stuff the same but then also uniquely different so each tribe mm -hmm. has their own um cultures and beliefs and um you know priorities so it was a uh, yeah interesting to learn um what other people were doing yeah okay is yeah, that yeah. is like the format pretty similar to just a regular scientific conference where you have you know you're kind of everyone's doing your speak kind of speakers and maybe a poster session or something yeah, a lot of speakers, a lot more applied type oh, of type of work. So like, you know, like, hey, I know, right? So it's like we did yeah. this, and like here was the outcome. Whereas, mm -hmm. like a more a more generalized conference might have like a theoretical type of research. Yeah, so no, yeah, more can... more so more so applied in this yeah, one. I get what you're saying. That's, I think like, that's uh, perfect for your for your agencies, though. Yep, and then the EPA has a, a big presence as well. So oh, good. Uh, old EPA. Yeah, good. so it was fun. Good to see nice. people. There you got go. to go on a um <laughs> on the on the river. They had um like a river boot boat cruise, river boot oh. cruise. And hmm. uh yeah, so on the Mississippi. That's always fun. on the Mississippi, right? Yeah. Hopefully it wasn't yeah. too low, the Mississippi. Not up there. No. Yeah. <laughs> That's good. I've been over the Mississippi a couple times the last couple weeks and I mean last podcast we talked about the the very low amount, but um mm -hmm not necessarily seen that higher up a little bit a little bit but like nothing nothing like down um the lower half apparently of hmm. mississippi yeah okay yeah, yeah. well okay yeah how are you doing uh doing good just another crazy week um poor man yeah leaving for my conference up in new york tomorrow so wow. i'm yeah had to get all packed <laughs> yeah <laughs> um but yeah i'm excited like i said i'm flying solo for this one uh, so looking forward to meeting, meeting a bunch of different people and learning some new things. I think it's nice to go to these conferences just cause it, I think it kind of wakes up your, your kind of like outreach part of your brain, if that makes sense. Cause you're so used to talking to like your people about your stuff and you just kind mm -hmm. of cut stuff, you kind of trim stuff down but when you're talking to someone you've never met and you're explaining what you do, you kind of like, you're throwing everything out. So it kind of wakes your brain up a little bit. I like it. Yeah. And this is a, a harmful algal bloom conference. It is. It is. Yeah. I think Where it's in New York? Albany. Oh, Albany's cool. Oh, okay. I've never been. So I went to Troy, which is close, but I okay. went through Albany. Um, okay. Troy's cool, I guess, specifically. Okay. Yeah. I didn't. Well, I went up there for a thing when I, my, my schooling, right? Um, mm -hmm. So uh, that was like, dude, that was, I think, three weeks before the pandemic, like, took off. So I was, like, in New York <laughs> City. Like, I drove into, like, oh, New York no. City, which was dumb. It was spent, like, for, like, 
four hours i spent like a hundred forty dollars like through the tolls and parking i was like this is the dumbest thing i've ever done but also i also like going through new york but uh yeah yeah okay but um super interesting i mean you're from like the east coast but like yeah i'm used to it man i'm just yeah, i'm yeah. used to all the tolls you got an easy pass so they just they they bill you later you know? i also had like i authentic um italian too which is like interesting i had like beef bellinese and i was like bolognese oh. you mean <laughs> did i say it wrong <laughs> bolognese yes Matt, Matt has um, Italian origin. I don't do not. Um, I do. I apologize. I, not offending anyone. My mom's but, side of the family is very Italian. So yeah, yeah, and, dude. But like, so like, yeah. No, um, I remember driving up through because I flew into Newark. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, yep. I drove New, up, New and that's like the the Hudson Valley, right? Like up yeah. that way. Yeah. yeah. So that, it was really yeah. interesting. Like, uh, upstate is um, it's got some elevation. Right, it's, oh, yeah. it's pretty. Yeah. yeah, you got the Adirondacks and stuff up there. Like upstate New York's gorgeous. I mean, I'm not a big city guy. Like New York's yeah. great. I've been to New York City a couple times. I like it. Like you know, there's a lot to do. It's just expensive. So um, wait, you you've never been to Albany though? Never been to Albany. Ooh, no, dude. No, 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 no. Um, are you like driving a car or what are you doing? You no, gonna... I'm flying. I'm not. I'm not doing that drive. Ah, <sighs> yeah. I was gonna say because it's it's closer to Montreal than I really expected. Like, oh it's really? Not that far away. Hmm. If I'm remembering correctly, I should have, I was kicking myself that I didn't like go to cross the border. Huh. Yeah. Well, I don't have my so. passport, so. Mad. Couldn't I'm get my renewed right to. now. Yeah. I do, just... I, I do need yeah. to get mine for yeah. Rachel and I's uh, honeymoon. She wants to take me to Spain. So it's, it's on my Ooh. list. Yeah. Here's a fun fact. If you're, so mine expires mm-hmm. like the 1st of February. Yes. And my wife and I, we literally just booked tickets for our honeymoon. Yes. And like, I like just Googled it. Cause I was like, gosh, that's, that's kind of close. Like we're going over the um, new year's. Mm-hmm. And then like I Googled, I was like, so like, if you come back before it expires, like, is it fine? They're like, no, you need like six months at least like, like buffering. So oh, like geez. I had to scramble. So mine, mine is getting um, updated right now. Oh God. And apparently that, close man. I know. It's like, well, I didn't even think about it. I mean, yeah. I'm just like, not um, going to let you back in. <laughs> I know, but it's like, it's also not expired. So like that kind of annoyed me. Yeah. Like, well, yeah. I, I guess it's more precautionary because, you know, you could oh, be yeah. overseas and you never know what happens. Your flight gets delayed and stuff like that, you know, so. But the one, and I don't know like the validity of this, but like the one person who helped me out at the post office was like, they're like, well, yeah, they normally won't let you like in if you had that close of a expiration date they yeah, said that, six months and i was like i don't, so I don't know i know yeah. i know but whatever yeah it, it did make me i mean that's why i looked into it because i was like gosh it is getting yeah. close but like uh if any of yeah, our listeners like, are if any of our listeners are a customs officer please let us know <laughs> 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 yeah but uh yeah so we booked Ooh man hopefully you have a, a credit card with some uh you're you're harvesting points right now because <laughs> the travel card really really hurt the the wallet when i uh yeah booked those flights so we booked it to paris and then Ooh. flight leaving rome and then we're also gonna go to munich oh like, it all was the sites wow i know we're like we'll just because in flying it through europe i've never been to europe so people maybe know this but like it's pretty reasonable mm-hmm. like what you're less in than, europe less... or getting to europe 
in Europe yeah, to Europe, okay. very expensive. Yeah. In Europe, oh, okay. like it's it's like a bus pass. You know what I'm saying? Huh. Um, so we're like, we won't take the train. The train was expensive. Everybody's hmm. like, just take the train. I'm like, yeah, it's pretty expensive versus like these flights. So we're mm-hmm. just gonna we're gonna fly from one place to the next. But yeah, hmm. we've been uh storing up points for this. Okay, yeah, well, that sounds like fun. Yeah, I'm I'm a very frugal person. So yeah, I can imagine going to pay for that honeymoon, and I'm like, what else could I spend this on? Oh yeah, don't even get me started. Hmm. Don't even get me started. It's crazy. <laughs> Plus, like since gas prices went up too, I was like, oh, oh shoot. Yeah. So I've been like, I was checking for, yeah, like a month straight, like prices, and I'm oh. like, this is just this is dumb. I need to. Yeah. So I like finally just ripped the bandaid them. off. Uh, yeah, and then on the flip side, the dollar compared to the euro is like stronger than like as it it's been so like mm-hmm. we might we might capitalize on this situation but yeah i mean just it's it's expensive just accept it yeah i think it last i checked because i was debating someone in the lab about it because they were like no it's not it's not close i'm like it's either like the exact same exchange rate or the dollar's a little more and last yes. i checked they were the exact same it was one to one yeah they for a little bit there um it, it was i think like a one to one point zero three i mean so yeah, yeah basically one to one um they yeah, were looking before, like yeah yeah but for a while i think the euro was like 1.5 versus for yeah, every dollar no. yeah, yeah yeah so this is good and then like uh did flights too oh my gosh since not to get too much of my hand but like uh <laughs> i didn't realize like connecting flights right mm-hmm. like so like a lot of times like you can connect through major pathways to like those those higher like european countries like um mm-hmm. Would, would go through Iceland or mm-hmm. um, through Ireland. Mm-hmm. And like the Iceland like layover is, was 45 minutes. And oh. like oh. every single one I looked was like 45 minutes through Iceland. I was like, Jesus. I was like, that That's... is no wiggle room. Mm-mm. I couldn't do it. So I ended up not doing it. I paid yeah. more for a nonstop, like a hundred bucks more. I was like, yeah, you might as well. I don't know anything like, about Iceland. It can't be a huge airport, but wasn't. still, forty-five minutes is cutting it close. Yeah, I looked like on like a the whatever boards, and it was like, oh, it's mm-hmm. fine. Like that's it, it, pretty normal. Mm-mm. I was like, that's just no first time. No Mm-mm. way. No way. Yeah, no. Uh, no gosh, thanks. but yeah. So yeah. All right, I think that's minutes. all we got. Uh, sorry. So, <laughs> no, you're good. I I like hearing the travel advice. So. I mean, we are freshwater and travel after all, right? So. Yeah. All right, everybody. We're back. Welcome to Freshwater Perspectives. Uh, I led last week, so Matt is going to take the reins today. And uh, what will we be talking about, Matt? All right. Thanks, Riley. Today, we're going to be talking about Arapaima and their pretty impressive conservation success story down in Brazil. It was a community-based uh, conservation program. Um so, have you ever heard of the show River Monsters, Riley? With Jeremy I used Wade, to back on, like, Discovery love Channel? that show. Oh, same. I hate, <laughs> I hate reality TV. Hate it. But that show <laughs> and the other reality TV that I liked was, um, still like, is Anthony Bourdain's show. Oh, yeah. Both shows. Yeah. So, um, I think it was Parts Unknown and then No Reservations, I think, were mm-hmm. those two big shows. Yep. Oh. yeah, yeah. yeah. Those are great. But uh, other than that, I mean, like, literally, I'm not lying. Like, those are, like, the two. Otherwise, I need scripted, okay? Okay. No. Yeah. So, yeah, I also... (laughs) I I also loved that show. 
Um, yeah. So this is great. I do remember the format being a little weird, where he was like always trying to solve a murder when he was catching the fish. But that is a little weird because he's yeah. like, "Will it fit in its mouth?" And then yeah. it's, like, it's always he could have like just going... gone out and just he could have just gone out and just trying to catch big fish, <laughs> and I think he would have gotten the same number of views. There was another show with an individual who like did that. It was like River Greats or something like that. Or yeah. like yeah, yeah. But so um, I know, I know. Jeremy Wade stopped doing it, so maybe they got someone else to replace him. It was but, like a yeah. professor from like Reno or like University of Las Vegas. Oh, hmm. and um, yeah, it was like a more like a on the conservation side. But he just went out and caught big fish, right? Yeah, that's, um, I'll yeah. Watch Jeremy that. Wade was always a couple of those episodes. Like mm -hmm. he caught like the big catfish, and he would like get down. Yeah. And he's like, oh, you could you could definitely fit in yeah. his mouth. And it's like, oh, could yeah. you tone it down? Or he'd always say the business end when he was talking yeah. about the fishes. Yeah, it's so funny. <laughs> I want to watch those again. Yeah, I they're great. Hold up. Yeah, they're, I wonder if they're they on do Netflix well. or something. Yeah. Anyway, so yeah. do you remember seeing an episode where he caught a giant air-breathing fish called an arapaima down in Brazil? I think I did actually. I think I remember like a... him like saying, and they're jumping out at him. Yeah, mm -hmm. am I right? Yeah, this no, is that's this it. is going. Deep, deep memory yeah, right here. They're kind of wow. like a ruby colored fish at the tail, kind of yes. greeny towards the head. With like a top um, mouth type of situation. Yes, yes. Yeah. They are pretty funky looking fish if you look them up. Um, how to spell Arapaima is A-R-A-P-A-I-M-A, -A -A, Arapaima. Um, so today's story sort of centers around the concept of the tragedy of the commons, which for anyone who knows anything about fisheries management, that phrase should kind of jump to your to the front of your head once I say that. Uh, but the tragedy of the commons, for those of you who don't know, refers to situations in which individuals with access to a public resource act in their own interests and ultimately deplete the resource. Um, it's something that has played out time and time again, in all honesty. Um, just a couple examples off the top of my head for marine fisheries like tuna, cod, salmon. Um, honestly, almost any marine fishery um, suffers from the tragedy of the commons. And the reason it's such an issue in marine systems is because, so, outs, I think it's beyond, what, 200 or 250 miles off of a country's coast. It's considered international waters, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, if I'm wrong there. Um, but, so, once you're in international waters, the only thing that's governing any fisheries is any existing treaties or agreements, if there are any. So at that point, you know, you have fishermen from all over the world who are trying to outcompete each other. So the the only vested interest is to get as many fish as they can. So that's really where you get this depletion of the resource. Um, so that's where we're gonna kind of hint to that a little bit today. Um, and our our story kind of pits these two main groups together. So they're these native um, kind of rural dwelling. Uh, people in Brazil who kind of set up their communities around uh, these lake systems that the Arapaima reside in. And then you get the more urban dwelling individuals uh, once Brazil kind of starts to to really build itself up um, in the mid 20th century. But so a little bit more on Arapaima. So like I said, they're massive air breathing freshwater fish. They're actually the largest scaled freshwater fish in the world, which I didn't know. Um, they can reach lengths up to 10 feet and be up to 440 pounds in extreme cases. Um, they're really? also, yeah. Mm -hmm. 10 feet? Yeah. Uh, that, I did not realize that. I do have to emphasize that is in extreme cases. Like Still. nine out of every 10 Arapaima you'll catch won't be, they'll be like six or seven feet, which is still a huge fish, but you'll probably never see if uh, Arapaima be 10 feet. 
anyway um they are absolutely apex predators in these uh systems so we're talking about the amazon uh river basin which you know you're gonna have to google it if you aren't if that doesn't have an ent- a mental image in your brain just how wide an area that is and it covers um it is kind of has a wet and dry season in these areas so you can have water levels drastically rise and fall and during the wet season you have this kind of sprawling area of rivers and offshooted lakes and things like that and then during the uh dry season obviously the water level decreases and a lot of these lakes become isolated so that's where a lot of these villages uh kind of set up shop so um locally known as piraruku in the brazilian amazon where they're native to i'm sorry if i butchered that i'm just going to call them arapaima from here on out um today arapaima are thriving in the pockets of its home range thanks to a combination of community cooperation and culinary marketing which is pretty interesting um but today we're going to take a deep dive into the history of arapaima and how it went from a literal brink of extinction to a sustainable fishery today uh, the story's great, mainly because it highlights the aspect of that kind of human dimension that we've talked about time and time again uh, on this podcast. Uh, and it's also one of those rare cases where big business doesn't just sort of dominate the industry. Uh, so any initial thoughts there, Riley, before I really get into the details here? I think I have heard a little bit about this, but I'm excited oh, to delve deeper. Um Definitely, I remember the tragedy of the commons of this situation. I just, mm-hmm. I can't remember if, I, if I've if i learned too much about the bounce back. So, okay. yeah, interesting. Definitely the um, culinary conservation. Is that what you said? Um, culinary. Yeah, something? culinary marketing. I don't. Marketing. Yeah, I don't get on that a ton um, towards yeah. the end here. But, I mean, I'm, I'll get to it. But Cool. Uh, most of what I'll be talking about comes from two great papers. One was published by McGrath et al. in 1993, which is titled Fisheries and Evolution of Resource Management in the Lower Amazon Floodplain. They go into great detail about the history of various fisheries in the Amazon Basin. And the other paper was published by Campos Silva and Paris in 2016. That paper is titled Community-Based Management Induces Rapid Recovery of a High-Value Tropical Freshwater Fishery. In that paper, they analyzed eight years' worth of data to evaluate how effective the management strategy has been since it was enacted. Uh, But before we get ahead of ourselves, let's start from the beginning, right? So like I just said, arapaima are huge fish that were very abundant in the Amazon basin for quite some time. On top of that, the fish is apparently very good tasting. So with an increased market demand and better equipment being monofilament fishing line, which allowed the use of gill netting along with diesel engines, Fishing pressure on the arapaima increased dramatically in the 1960s as fishermen could go farther, stay out longer, and catch way more fish. This was also compounded by the collapse of the jute market, which is uh, with the inception of synthetic clothing fibers. Jute being a primary source of income for many Brazilians forced many to turn to fishing. If you don't know what jute is, like it just said, uh, it was mainly used for clothing fibers. I never heard of it. It originates from Asia. And it was brought over to Brazil as a form of uh, as a form of farming for income for a lot of Brazilians. So again, once that once that collapsed, a lot of these Brazilians started turning to fishing. So with the increased mm-hmm. demand and therefore profits from the fish, this led to an increase in commercial arapaima fishing, as well as a clash with subsistence communities. So you can already kind of see where things are going to start to start to come to a head here. So there were several violent conflicts that the, that the McGrath paper mentioned, including one incident 
in which a hundred subsistence fishermen descended on a commercial outfit, burning their nets and sawing two boats in half. So this quickly turned violent. Hmm. And the motivation for these conflicts were a combination of outsiders stealing fish without any compensation for the local villagers and commercial fishermen taking as many fish as they could without regard to size or sex. There is also evidence of conflict between different commercial outfits over the strategies as well. And that essentially boiled down to where the commercial group is based out of. So these urban-based fishers had a scorched earth approach where they were just going to take as many fish as they could before their competitors did. Again, kind of talking about the tragedy of the commons, right? You can kind of start to see where things are starting to lead. While the rural-based outfits were keenly aware that the fishery needed to be sustainably managed to ensure continuous yield. These conflicts also highlight the fundamental differences in lifestyle. Rural-based villages believed an ownership was a community construct with all resources being shared, while the urban-based cities function on the everyman-for-himself sort of mindset. So this is where you're really kind of starting to get, like I said, this this kind of clash of two different worlds, right? You're kind of having this on one side, if you want to think of it this way, it's kind of modernization of Brazil and the kind of old way of doing things where... Brazil is hoping to kind of catch up with the rest of the world, grow its in, grow its economy, and just, you know, one way of doing that is just get as much money as they can, right? Functioning, kind of flowing through the country. And fishing can be a big way to do that. Whereas you're also getting the more rural-based villages that are very much in tune with the ecology of Arapaima. So they're very much aware of how to farm these fish sustainably. And we'll get We'll get to that in just a second here. So I want to take a step back and really try to hit home how these subsistence villages viewed the natural resources and the Arapaima fishery in general. So first, like I just said, these communities were centered around the traditional notion of community-based ownership. Because the entire village lived along the edges of small lakes that the Arapaima reside in, the entire community claimed ownership of the lake. This mindset also prevents one single person from trying to claim the entire lake as it just wasn't possible seeing as everyone lived around the lake. And as a result, everyone managed it together. So in many cases where communities controlled a lake, the villagers also felt that the fish were theirs and took the responsibility of managing them very seriously. In many cases, guarding their lakes and constructing wooden fences at the mouth of the lake to prevent boats, outside boats from entering. So again, these they felt like these, it's almost like a, a farmer protecting their herd, right? So, like, these are our mm-hmm. fish. We know exactly how to manage them. Everyone else just needs to stay away. So, on top of that, different communities had their own rules for ensuring that the Arapaima were not being overfished. Some villages restricted the equipment they could use. Others chose not to use diesel engines. This was a combination of, like I said earlier, you could go out, catch more fish, so you could stay out longer and catch more fish. But it was also because you had to pay for diesel. Uh, it didn't store very well. Back then, uh, and why pay for fuel when you you can make a paddle for free at the end of the day? So another common restriction was to not use gill nets during the low water season, as of course there'd be the same number of fish crammed into smaller volume of water. So you know you're you're just going to inherently catch more fish. So you can really kind of see how untuned these villages were again with the ecology of the system, and again because they're subsistence farmers, there were some villages that did some trading with outside markets, but even then they did this uh, sustainably. And another thing with trying not to catch too many fish is that you can only store and eat so many at a time, right? So there's no point in catching 
40 fish in a week if you can only if the whole village can only eat five fish in a week so you're just going to end up wasting all those fish anyway um and on top of that some communities restricted fishermen from selling their catches outside of the village so this helped remove the pressure of needing to keep up with these commercial setups and again all these measures just serve to highlight the people's understanding of the arapaima ecology and basic fisheries management concepts so if we're talking about you know what what we talked about in a lot of previous episodes right so we talked about the slot limit and things like that and you kind of hinted at it in your uh in your caviar episode riley is you know you want to protect a lot of those bigger individuals or what you want to do is you want to only take those big individuals so that way one you're getting kind of more bang for your buck you're getting more meat per individual and you're also ensuring that the juveniles are going to keep graduating up every year right mm-hmm. yeah so these are a lot of concepts that a lot of us go to school to think about, to, to, you know, kind of be taught. And there are these villages that just through that oral tradition and, and just their way of life, they're so in tune with these Arapaima, they don't need to be taught it. They just, they understand it. Right. Yeah. So what do you, yeah. What do you think so far? Yeah. It's interesting. Right. Um, yeah, definitely working for a tribe. Um, coming to find that depth that's called, well, we term it like traditional environmental knowledge, TK. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And um, combining that with, yeah, what you learn in school has been mm-hmm. a process in my um, early career here, um, definitely. And yeah, mm-hmm. it's a, right, that there's a way of doing it. And it's, um, so like wild rice, for example, it, um, how how that's harvested by um, a lot of tribal members, it's, it like sustains it. Whereas mm-hmm. like a, if, um, if you're going to have like a commercial harvester that might go and like cut everything that's not sustainable. So um, mm-hmm. there's like a way of that um, preparing before harvest then like actually harvesting and then like returning some of the seed back that like keeps it, keeps it going. That's been passed down through, through generations and might not be something that's, that's known to, to the outside world too much. So yeah, definitely um, interesting stuff. Yeah. And I think it also, we've kind of brought this up in a couple other previous episodes, just how important it is to know your system as a resource manager or as a pond owner, whatever it is, right? Just because I think it's like the personal knowledge and anecdotal evidence you have in your system can be more valuable than what you learn in a classroom. I think it's easy for people who, you know, work in a lab all day and, you know, I, th- I think we kind of get a, a big a big ego about ourselves when we're talking about farmers right like these farmers like we're trying to help the farmers they don't know what they're talking about and you go out and talk to them and they know everything that's going on in their system um so yeah it's it can be pretty humbling when you go out and that's why it's so important to actually talk to talk to these resource managers right um oh gosh yeah we could go we could go down a rabbit (laughs) hole you know i think about this yeah i think um it's some natural resource um academic situations that that's for sure has been lost Mm -hmm. a little bit yeah. And that's just the nature of the game. And I think, yeah, going back to that, like, um, I definitely, there's people that do it way better than me, but like, um, yeah, going out and actually like learning. Right. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's even outside of academia too. Like you can be a, in the natural resources, be stuck up in an office and not really get that, um, mm-hmm. engagement. So it's huge for sure. Yeah. Um, I think that needs a, we need like a, a renaissance in some, some regard in our field with that. Definitely. Oh, hundred percent. Yeah. I'm, very lucky that I've gotten to interact with different resource managers and farmers like catfish farmers in aquaculture settings or um, resource managers working with drinking water plants. And you have too, obviously, Riley, we've, we've come through the same system. So, so you, you understand that the value of that as well. Um, oh yeah. 
Yeah, I got, yeah. I got yelled at a few times. <laughs> <laughs> what are you guys doing? Yeah, no. You guys think you know everything. You're like, yeah, I know. We, I mean, there's, yeah, we don't. Um, you're there's right. Truth to it too. Yeah. Yeah. No, you're right. It's sometimes yeah. you need that that kind of kick to your ego, honestly. Yeah. You think you know? You're like, oh well, I'm I have my master's degree. What do you mean? But anyway, getting getting back to the story here. So talked about all these confrontations that they were having, right? So a lot of this culminated in not just the one confrontation I talked about, but there were dozens, if not hundreds of, the, of these going on. There were some accounts that I was trying to read, but they were all in Portuguese and I don't speak Portuguese and I tried to translate them and couldn't do it very easily. So Aww, forgive me. Come on, man. Um, I know. Sorry. <laughs> Google translate doesn't, doesn't do very well. Yeah. Um, so a lot of these confrontations led to local communities trying to outcompete the urban based fishers at this market. Uh, but to little avail. So a lot of them turned to saying, all right, you know what? If they're going to come in and try to steal our fish, let's keep them from stealing our fish. So let's just prevent them from making a profit. So let's at least help the village and let us make a profit. But again, that that didn't really work. Uh, but rather than give up and surrender their livelihood to these commercial fishers, entire villages coordinated to close their lakes or stretches of rivers to commercial giants and were successful in some cases. So we talked about how they're actually putting up gates and fences. They're guarding their actual lake. So they're, they really kind of beef things up. And again, this only led to further confrontations. But in 1993, the Brazilian government legally sanctioned closures and other agreements, I'm putting agreements in air quotes, that communities installed with commercial fishers. This gave subsistence farmers uh, the teeth to actually protect the resource with the legal backing of the government. And the government doubled down their support by creating the 620,000 acre, pardon my, uh, pardon my pronunciation here, Media Huara Extractive Reserve in 1997. This reserve legally included 2,000 people across 23 villages and was later followed by the 1.5 million acre Uwakari Sustainable Development Reserve that included 1,200 people across 32 villages. These reserves further restricted access to commercial operations and really gave these subsistence villages the protection that they required from the federal government. And this marked a pretty significant turning point in Brazilian resource management as up until that time, the entire country was based on an open access approach, meaning that anyone could fish anywhere and take as many fish as they wanted. So as Riley talked about in the previous episode, he kind of alluded to that saying that modern day fisheries management isn't really that old. And this is the case here. So this took until 1993 for, or sorry, 1997 with that second of federal reserve there, uh, for things to actually kind of take a much more rigorous and kind of beefed up management strategy. Nothing's actually sanctioned as far as the, the Brazilian government's coming in saying, this is how many fish you can take, but they're at least recognizing that the commercial settings have their way of doing things and the subsistence farmers have their way of doing things. So looking back at all this, you might be asking, uh, did it work or how successful was it? And the answer is remarkably successful. In the study by Campos Silva and Perez in 2016, the researchers examined 83 lakes over a period of eight years. The researchers divided these 83 lakes into three categories based on their management strategy. So one was open access. Again, that's the free-for-all setting. 
The next was subsistence use, which is just local communities fishing for subsistence purposes without outside influence. And the last was protected lakes. And these protected lakes were managed by local communities as Arapaima recovery sites close to fishing, aside from about five days out of the year when they really felt like they needed to get some extra food on the table. They also conducted censuses at each lake and approximated village revenue free from each fish and conducted 63 interviews with local community members about their perceptions of the Arapaima fishery, where they asked if it was increasing, decreasing, steady, along with the population estimate for their lake. So, at the end of their eight-year study, Campo Silva and Perez concluded that there was a dramatic increase in the local Arapaima population as a result of the community-based management practices versus the open access approach, which may be intuitive, but again, sometimes it's nice to, to provide the numbers. So they found significant differences in the number of Arapaima in each lake with an average of, all right, I'm going to say this slowly, an average of 304 Arapaima in protected lakes. 34 in subsistence lakes, and 9 in open access lakes. This difference is only accentuated when you consider that open access lakes were, on average, 550 acres larger than protected lakes, meaning that if you account for the amount of arapaima per acre, there were roughly 131 times more arapaima per acre in protected lakes than open access lakes. Whoa. Yeah. Which what again, a difference. Wow. May sound intuitive, right? That if you're not catching, if you're not taking out that many fish, there's going to be more fish. But it really just hammers home that, yeah, management is necessary for, especially again, Arapaima can be pretty long lived as well. Um, so it should be noted that the population growth rates were also positive for both the protected and subsistence lakes and either negative or no change in the open access lakes. If we are comparing the first year of the study to the last year of the study. So across that eight years, Arapaima populations increased 213% in protected lakes and 193% in subsistence lakes. So they more or less doubled in these protected and subsistence lakes. And in some cases, Arapaima yield inc increased five times in the subsistence lakes from one year to the next. And I thought it was interesting that the populations, like that increase, wasn't that different in the protected or those or the subsistence lakes. Two hundred thirteen percent to one hundred ninety three percent. You can just say they both doubled essentially, mm -hmm. which is pretty interesting. Yeah, it is interesting. Um, hmm. And then, and I mean, like I said, depending on the year. Uh, about five days a year, sometimes that was just the number they got. So they could have been in there taking more fish out, you know, whenever the researchers weren't there. Uh, sure. But more or less, the protected lakes weren't supposed to be touched unless they really needed them. Yeah. So lastly, even when considering lake surface area, the management practices used on a lake was far greater explanatory variable for increasing Arapaima population meaning that it didn't matter if you were looking at a huge lake or a small lake, whichever lake was using the protected or subsistence strategies was going to have more Arapaima. Lastly, I said lastly, but this is lastly, uh, when the researchers cross-referenced their data with the villager interviews, they were all accurate, which probably isn't a huge surprise. Again, they're so in tune with the, with the ecology of these animals. And again, sometimes you just don't need science and the numbers to tell you when something's working, right? It's just, cool. if you know your system, yeah. you know your system. 
So mm-hmm. it's a really cool story. And there wasn't much else on that culinary marketing side, but just how um, once the subsistence farming really got into it, and again, some of these communities did get together to sell to outside markets, a lot of the kind of really fancy restaurants were marketing Arapaima under a different name and kind of, you know, you see this a lot with with certain species. So they're creating that demand, but also they're the uh, the restaurants were only targeting these subsistence villages. So they weren't accepting Arapaima from commercial outfits. So they're encouraging these subsistence farmers as opposed to the commercial farmers. Hmm. So cool. Yeah. And that's that's yeah. pretty much it. But yeah, I just thought that was a a pretty interesting case. It's something that you don't see that often. Um where I mean the Brazilian government barely stepped in, right? It's not like they were telling the fishermen that you can only take this many fish out and only target the big ones and make sure you're protecting this many. It was the people already knew and they knew this for generations. The only thing the Brazilian government did, I can't say only thing, but a big thing they did to help was actually keep out the commercial fisheries. Mm -hmm. Um, And yeah, the subsistence farming, it dramatically rebounded the Arapaima and those areas. And like the numbers show you, they're doing great where they're, where they are protected or only subsistence farmed. But yeah. Wow. What do you think, Riley? Yeah. No, I think it's super interesting. Um, yeah. That community based uh, kind of restructuring or like bringing back um, the Arapaima. That's mm-hmm. so interesting. Yeah. Guarding what's yours. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, like I said, I can't, I can't hit home at this point enough. Just how I like how the people did it themselves. They weren't waiting for the government to tell them. Um, granted there was some violence involved mm-hmm. between the subsistence people and their and the commercial counterparts. Um, but yeah, I think it's just one of those great examples where, and this is happening in some places, go, go off on a little bit of a tangent. We love doing tangents here anyway. Um, but right around when the California condor was starting to decline, right? I don't know if you know that much about this story, Riley. Um, but one thing that came out was they were saying that a lot of the condors were lead poisoned. Right. So because yeah, no, they are, so because they're scavengers, if you're a hunter, you're going to go out, shoot a deer, you're going to gut it, leave the gut pile, and then take it home with you. Right. So then all the lead fragments that are in the guts of that kill, the condor is going to come in, eat it. So they're, that's all they're eating is all the carrion. Right. So they're eating all these mm-hmm. gut piles, then the lead accumulates and they get lead poisoning. Um, that wasn't the only contribution, but that was one of the big explanations that was that was given. Yeah. So what California decided to do was they just banned all lead ammunition, which is understandable. Um, but if we know anything about Americans is we don't like being told what to do. So since the lead ban, the use of lead ammunition hasn't really decreased as much as you would expect with a lead ban. Huh. Uh, on the flip side, if you go just south of California to Arizona, how Arizona dealt with this is Arizona Fish and Wildlife said, we're not going to do a ban. We're going to do workshops. So they went out to farmer or to, to hunters and they held workshops and they said, hey, you can use copper or you can use lead. Here's why we think you should use copper. That's all. And they found dramatic decreases in the amount of lead purchased and used, which is interesting, right? Yeah. Sometimes you, you don't frame it. Yeah, I, yeah, didn't, know, I some, didn't hear about that. Yeah, sometimes you don't need to fight stuff out in legislature. A lot of times it's just about education, right? 
So mm-hmm. I thought that was yeah. interesting. But yeah. Cool. All right, man. But, that was great. Yeah, thanks. Good job, uh, Matt. I appreciate it. So anyone who wants to read more about this, uh, the Arapaima article will be up on fishwaterandtravel.com. That is our kind of mothership website, if you will. All the other associating social media accounts, Facebook, Instagram, all that. Uh, feel free to check anything else out. So until next time, Riley, I'll see you. All right, Matt. We'll see ya.